0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the December issue of the Jewish Observer. First from the Dayton section of the Observer, former Air Force Museum director who brought Holocaust exhibit for permanent display dies. Retired Major General Charles D. Metcalf, who served as director of the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force from 1996 to 2010, died October 29th at age 88. During his tenure, which included significantly increasing the museum's attendance and expanding its galleries, Metcalfe brought Prejudice and Memory, a Holocaust exhibit, for permanent display there. We owe being there to Major General Metcalf, said Dayton Holocaust Committee Chair Renee Friedman, who curated, uh, curated the exhibit, one of the first in America to focus on local survivors, liberators, and righteous Gentiles. Friedman recalled that Prejudice and Memory was originally designed as a mobile exhibit in 1997. It had, presen- it had been presented at 10 sites across southwest Ohio. When Metcalf invited Friedman to display the exhibit at the Air Force Museum from February through September 1999. When it opened, immediately the school started sending students by appointment to us, the docents, to take them through the exhibit, she said. Soon after Prejudice and Memory opened at the Air Force Museum, Friedman led a presentation for museum staff. When it was done, Major General Metcalf came over to me and said, What would you say if I told you we want to keep it permanently? I couldn't believe it. It was such a miracle. Four months went into almost 23 years now. Friedman remembered the news also raised some opposition. At first, people wrote in letters, Why is it here in the Air Force Museum? Metcalf pronounced his reply. The ceremony to celebrate the acceptance of the new exhibit in April 1999. A number of people have asked me, why here? My response has always been, why not? It's exactly what we've been fighting about. When you look at the Liberators and the stories that were told, you conclude that's what we were fighting about. Metcalf entered the Air Force in 1955 and served for nearly 36 years on active duty in a variety of financial management and planning positions. He retired in 1991. Friedman said that every time Metcalf would talk about the Holocaust exhibit, he'd note it was very much a part of World War II history, and therefore it belonged in the museum. He didn't let a single thing deter him from keeping it there. This is a person who absolutely stood behind us 100%, she said and when he did retire, the directors since have continued that legacy. Spring Semester Holocaust Course at Sinclair History and Humanities Professor James Freeze will offer the course History of the Holocaust January 11th to May 5th at Sinclair College on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 12.30 to 1.45 p.m. The Tuesday class will be held in person. The Thursday classes will be online via Zoom. The course addresses the intellectual, philosophical, political, and economic background of the Holocaust, Nazi implementation of oppressive policies that culminated in genocide against Jews, and the murder of millions of others classified as belonging to undesirable groups. The relationship between World War II and Nazi attempts to establish racial purity, the massive system of concentration and death camps established by the Nazis, the relationship between the Holocaust and historical memory, the problem of Holocaust denial, and the continued existence of genocides in the modern world. The cost is $378.09 for Montgomery County residents, but it may be audited for free by students age 60 or older. For more information, contact Freeze at Jamie.Freeze. That's J-A-M-I-E.F-R-I-E-S at Sinclair.edu. Next, from the Observer, the Soviet spy who stole atomic secrets in Dayton. Anne Hagedorn details how, and possibly why, George Koval committed the perfect crime against America. Five years ago, former Wall Street Journal staff writer and nonfiction author Anne Hagedorn interviewed a 92-year-old man for a story she hoped to turn into a book. At the end of the interview, the guy knew that I had grown up in Dayton to a certain point, and so he said, Did you know that there was a secret within the secret of the Manhattan Project in Dayton during the war? I said no. He said yes, it might have been near where you once lived, and a Soviet spy was involved. Hage Dorn, who was raised in Oakwood until she was nine, couldn't stop thinking about what he had told her. She found the New York Times article from 2007 that reported Russian President Vladimir Putin had posthumously awarded Russia's highest civilian honor to George Koval, the only Soviet intelligence officer to infiltrate the United States' secret plants, and that his work helped speed up considerably the time it took for the Soviet Union to develop an atomic bomb of its own. The world then learned that by the end of World War II, George Koval had laid the secrets of the United States atom bomb triggers at the Kremlin's feet, first through his infiltration at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and then at Dayton. Hage Dorn jettisoned the book project she was working on to learn all she could about Koval. Her extensive research and declassification of thousands of pages of FBI files through the Freedom of Information Act has yielded Sleeper Agent, the atomic spy in America who got away, Simon & Schuster, published in July. Koval committed the perfect crime against the United States. It wasn't until 1955, seven years after he had left the United States, and six years after the Soviet Union had detonated its first atomic bomb, that J. Edgar Hoover's FBI began to investigate him as a possible Soviet spy. Hage Dorn, who now lives in Ripley, Ohio, focuses on the psychology of the spy and sleeper agent, and how anti-Semitism, first in Tsarist Russia, then in the United States, and finally in Communist Russia, impacted the choices the Koval family made. Being traitors to our country, you can't honor them, she says, but you can recognize there was a reason for what they did. She describes Koval as a charming, accomplished, bright young man who grew up in Sioux City, Iowa, a straight-A student. He graduated high school at 15. His parents, staunch secular socialists, had departed the Russian Empire in 1910-1911 amid its vicious anti-Semitism. And his mother's father was a rabbi, Hage Dorn says. She replaced Judaism with socialism. George's parents are very active in the concept of ending world oppression, starting with ending anti-Semitism. The Kovels were part of a minority of Jews in Sioux City who had become avowed communists by the 1920s. They were enticed by Lenin's pledge after the October Revolution of 1917 to criminalize anti-Semitism and allow full Jewish participation in society. According to FBI testimony from the 1950s, the Kovals didn't participate in Sioux City's organized Jewish community, with the exception of the Jewish Community Center's sports programs. By 1925, Koval's father headed the Sioux City chapter of the Association for Jewish Colonization in Russia. The propaganda coming out of the Soviet Union was brilliant, Hagedorn notes. In 1931, in the wake of financial setbacks from the Great Depression, and Koval's arrest for allegedly inciting a raid at the county overseer of the Poor's Office, Koval, age 17, his parents, and his two brothers left America for what would prove a brutal life of hunger in the Soviet Jewish Autonomous Region region, 5,000 miles east of Moscow. Koval's brilliance as a college science student on the eve of World War II brought him to the attention of the GRU, the Soviet Union's main intelligence directorate. Whether he had any choice in the matter to become a spy is not known correspondence Hage Dorn has found for much later in life implies he may have. She believes that if Koval had a choice, he became a spy because of devotion to his family. She points out that Koval and his wife Lyudmila Ivanova, a member of Imperial Russia's arist- uh, aristocracy, had married in 1936, shortly after the beginning of what would be known as Stalin's Great Purge the brutal years when millions of Russians died from executions or forced labor in the camps of Siberia. Hegedorn found that in late 1938 or early 1939, someone living with the couple in a Moscow apartment had reported them to the government. If he was a Gru intelligence officer, no matter where he went and where he died, his family would have been protected, Hagedorn says. After his training, Koval arrived in the United States in 1940, began his work with a cover business in New York, enrolled for the draft in 1941 under his real name, and took chemistry classes through the Extension program at Columbia University. He goes to Columbia to mingle with scientists, she says. The the physicists of world renown are now at Columbia. Because the US Army needed exceptional scientists, it established its specialized training program and within it, the Special Engineer Detachment. After Koval was drafted, he achieved a stratospheric score of 152 on the Army's classification test. Koval was brought into the Special Engineer Detachment. Following a year of electrical engineering training at City College of New York, Koval was first assigned to Oak Ridge, Tennessee in August 1944 and then to Dayton from July 1945 to January 1946. Oak Ridge and Dayton were among the more than 30 top secret sites in the United States, Canada, and United Kingdom tasked with designing, building, and fueling the United States atomic bombs. With Koval's role in the Health Physics Department, determining radiation health hazards and developing instruments to to detect levels of radiation, he had access to highly classified information and sites at Oak Ridge and Dayton. Along with safety pr- uh, protocol information he provided to his Soviet handlers, he also gave them the U.S. government's recipe for polonium production and purification. This was the secret to creating the trigger for America's atom bombs, the shortcut to help the Soviets successfully test their own atom bomb four years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Polonium was produced and purified at the Runnymede Playhouse in Oakwood, sent to Los Alamos, New Mexico, and used with beryllium to fuel atom bomb triggers. Those with the U.S. Army assigned to the four sites across the Dayton area working on the polonium problem for Monsanto, chemical company wore civilian clothes. Koval and his roommate, also transferred from Oak Ridge, lived at 1111 North Main Street in Dayton for a month, and then shared a room at 825 Grand Avenue. Koval joined a bowling league. Always want to have a pretty girl on his arm. In Dayton, he dated 22-year-old Janet Fisher over the summer of 1945. Fisher and her sister had jobs at the Playhouse site that summer. FBI documents le- years later indicated that the sisters lived with their parents and that Koval would play bridge with the Fishers on Sunday nights but the girl's mother sensed something suspicious about Koval. He would never talk about his family, and that made her uncomfortable. If anyone in the U.S. government or military had suspicions about Koval, they could have pieced together his secret with little difficulty, but no one did, or no one reported it. Hoover was right that there were these very sophisticated Soviet espionage networks, Hagedorn says. But he was so blinded by opportunism, bigotry, politics, and he was always hunting in the wrong territory that all the spies had to be members of the Communist Party USA. If you were trained by the Gru and you were smart, you weren't spending your weekends with your fellow spies. You did things like George did. Someone like George is blending in, not just with his language or with his exceptional skills as a scientist, much needed during wartime here but at the same time culturally he was playing bridge, bowling. Koval received his discharge from the army in February 1946, turned down a job offer with Monsanto, completed his degree in electrical engineering from City College of New York, then returned to the Soviet Union in 1948. When he returns to Russia in 1948 there's a huge outbreak of anti-semitism Stalin is going after the cosmopolitans, and it's really dreadful," Hagedorn says. Though his spying was a state secret and he had received no accolades, behind the scenes Koval leveraged his role to receive a professorship at the Mendeleev Institute in Moscow, his alma mater. There he would publish more than 100 scientific papers and had a loyal student following. He died in 2006 at age 92. His grandniece told Hage Dorn that he never talked about his past. Though in 2002 when signing copies of the book The Gru and the Atom Bomb for two of his former students he included his code name Delmar, the closest he came to revealing his role. Hage Dorn, who is not Jewish, notes that many of the Soviet spies were not Jewish. And you look at the ones who were and what you have to do is say why? The underlying theme throughout his life was the anti-Semitism. The backlash of bigotry is interwoven all the way through. And next the Mazel Tov column from the Jewish Observer. Julie and Dr. Rob Bloom were among the cyclists to join the Friends of the IDF Ride Israel 2021 October 30th to November 5th. Over six days the Bloom cycled from the Sea of Galilee to Mount Hermon to the Golan Heights and down to Jerusalem. They also visited soldiers at Army bases. This was the Bloom's second bike ride with uh, FIDF. Julie is also president of the Dayton chapter of Hadassah. Jonas Sandler and his team at Scene 75 have grabbed the brass ring once again. The Columbus site has won the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions Brass Ring Award as the top family entertainment center of the world. Scene 75 Cincinnati location won the award in 2016, and the Dayton site has been nominated for the award twice. Jonah, Scene 75's chief entertainment officer, founded the business in Dayton in 2012. Judges evaluate centers' community give-back programs, COVID safety measures, technological advancements to the amusement industry, marketing materials, and entertainment offerings. The Columbus site, Jonah says, is the largest indoor family entertainment center in the country. Along with Scene 75's four locations in Ohio, Jonah has one on the way for the Chicago suburbs. Send your Mazel tov announcements to jewishobserver at jfgd.net. And a life cycle in this issue of The Observer... Gabrielle and Todd Leventhal, proud Yellow Springers, are thrilled to announce the engagement of their son, Quinn Leventhal, to the fabulous Leah Stein. The pair met at Capital One, where both are employed as business managers. Leah Stein is the daughter of Larry Stein and Lisa Ziniger of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Quinn is a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis, And Leah graduated from Brandeis. All parents and siblings are ecstatic over this excellent match. The wedding is slated for 2023, which should give everyone enough time to hash out the guest list. Send your life cycle announcements to jewishobserver at jfgd.net. And next from the religion page of the Observer, The First Step Toward Repentance by Rabbi Karen Bodney Hallis, Temple Israel. In the book, The Beggar King and the Secret of Happiness, Joel ben Izzy shares the story, The Search for Truth. It is about a man who gives up everything he cares about in search of truth. He scours the world until at last he learns of a mountain in India where the truth resides. Upon reaching the top of this mountain, he discovers truth, but she isn't as he imagined. She is hideous, the ugliest creature he had ever seen. She had bulging eyes, a bumpy face, wild teeth and untamed hair. He stays with her and studies her ways for years. Before leaving he asks how he can repay her. I would ask simply this, she said, when you go out in the world and speak of me tell them I am young and beautiful. I share this with you while I continue to process the Morgan Lewis report about my alma mater, Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. The report reveals a truth far more heinous than I ever imagined, outlining five decades of unethical behaviors within the college institute that, in many cases, were well-known secrets for years. Pursuing truth is not an easy path. It requires us to give up long-held perceptions and, at times, pull us into dark places where we would rather not shed light. I am grateful that HUC said yes to this journey, engaging a respected third-party organization to investigate the truth, unveil it, and make its findings public. It is a sign of integrity and the first step toward institutional teshuva, repentance but it isn't pretty. The report brings forward myriad examples of the abuse and misuse of power. Morgan Lewis specifically pointed to microaggressions, bullying, academic gatekeeping, sexism, discrimination, retaliation, sexual advances, sexual harassment, protection of perpetrators over victims, reports swept under rugs, and straight-up intolerance. In some cases, it was within the highest levels of leadership. I find this especially egregious that these sins emerge from within a community that prides itself on heeding the prophetic call for justice and defending those who have been marginalized. My heart hurts for those directly impacted in these ways. I wish I could say I'm surprised by all of this, but I can't. I am, however, shocked by the depth and severity of the abuse. When I first contemplated the rabbinate, I knew there wouldn't be an even playing field. Before I ever applied to HUC, I knew about the difficulties faced by women in the rabbinate. I had interviewed women rabbis about their experiences, collected data that showed clear biases of women in pulpits, and spent two summers as rabbinic intern learning early on about double standards and navigating when to conform versus when to confront. But I didn't let this dissuade me from applying to HUC. I had resigned myself to gender imbalances when, in hindsight, I should have had higher expectations, especially from an institute of higher learning dedicated to training future religious leaders. In 2019, one of my favorite professors from HUC Carla Goldman published the article, My Pioneer Days, facing the patriarchy at Hebrew Union College. In it, she revealed some of the ugly truths we are reading about now. Gender discrimination, gender bias, broken systems for reporting and appeals and gatekeepers. But she also wrote the following, I believe the best way to support a school that I still care about is to hold it accountable for both its past and its presence. I was moved by this then and continue to be now. It seemed that she never gave up on the school's potential for Tetushuva, recognizing there was good even while calling out the bad. This was what I took from Rabbi Sally Priesen's recent statement in which she criticized Rabbi Alfred Gottschalk for his horrible misconduct, but also acknowledged that she was only able to become the first female rabbi because of him. My HUC experience was not without complications, but there were also many positive aspects such as excellent learning opportunities, inspiring classmates, and caring and supportive professors, including one who was named in this report. The findings in this report won't eclipse those memories. They will, however, remind me of how complex and imperfect people are, even those we hold in the greatest esteem. In my opinion, the best way for us to respond to this report is to see the truth as it is, warts and all. We need to reckon with our history. It won't be pretty, but it is necessary. Acknowledging and facing the dark spots of our past offers us an opportunity to seek out real and lasting teshuva. As the Women's Rabbinic Network beautifully wrote, now is the moment to prove that our future will be different than our past, Now is the moment to ensure that people of all genders, sexual orientations, races, and abilities will be safe and respected within Reformed Jewish spaces. May it be so. Next from The Observer, prolific writer has 4,000 dreidels found by Eastern European treasure hunters by Shira Hanau, JTA. Even when Arthur Kurzweil sits by himself in his study, he doesn't feel that he's alone after all, he has the dreidels, all 4,000 of them. Kurzweil, 70, is a prolific author and editor who has written books about Judaism and magic and his car rides with Talmudic scholar Aidan Steinsaltz, as well as the Kabbalah and Torah installments in the Four Dummies series. His most significant contribution to Jewish publishing, however, may be his books and teaching about Jewish genealogy he has exhaustively chronicled his efforts to trace his own family's lineage, including along the many branches that were broken when family members were murdered in the Holocaust. The dreidels pulled from the earth across across Eastern Europe represent an extension of that work, Kurtzweil said from amid the collection in his Long Island home. I look at them and think, what's the history of this? And when's the last time somebody played that game, he said, adding, I wonder what this person's fate ultimately was. It's not just the dreidels that surround Kurzweil. Quietly, and in collaboration with Eastern Europe's sizable community of treasure hunters, he has amassed a sweeping collection of Jewish objects unearthed from throughout Eastern Europe. While Holocaust museums and concentration camps bring visitors face to face with the piles of shoes and eyeglasses worn by Jews who were about to be killed, Kurzweil lives with reminders of the lives they lived. In addition to the tiny dreidels made of pewter and lead and clearly intended for children, Kurzweil has also collected boxes of metal kosher seals, which would have been affixed to packages of food to attest to their kosher status, dozens of pins that would have been worn by members of Jewish youth and Zionist organizations, and coin-sized metal discs that synagogues would have handed out to people being called to the Torah. The collection also includes amulets that, while not a typical Jewish practice today, were historically used by Jews seeking to ward off various ailments. Several of the amulets in the collection include a prayer to protect the wearer from diphtheria. Others were worn to protect the wearer from the dangers of childbirth. The size and breadth of Kurzweil's collections paint a unique portrait of everyday Eastern European Jewish life during the late 19th and early 20th century until the beginning of the Holocaust. That makes them unique in the context of Jewish history and art collections which more typically focus on ritual objects such as Hanukkah menorahs, Shabbat candlesticks or intricately decorated spice boxes used in the Havdalah ritual to end Shabbat. It shows everyday shtetl life at its most basic and ordinary and, if you will, when things were going relatively well, said Beth Weingast, an art and Judaica appraiser, who examined the collection for Kurzweil several years ago. William L. Gross, a collector of Judaica and Jewish art in Tel Aviv for nearly half a century, owns a large collection of amulets himself. He said he had never heard of a collection of workaday items as large as Kurzweil's. Noted that objects such as the ones Kurzweil collected that speak to the daily lives of Jews in pre-war Eastern Europe remain woefully understudied. It's fabulous material because it's objects of the normal regular Jew, not the aristocracy, not the merchant class, but the people, and that is of extreme importance, Gross said. John Ward, who heads the Silver Department at the Sotheby's, likewise said Kurzweil's collection of Judaica made from inexpensive metals such as pewter and lead is significant. To have this focus on the folk art, And the utilitarian side, that would be the only one I've heard of, he said. While Ward spends most of his time working with objects made of expensive materials, he noted that a collection like Kurtzweil's would tell an important story about Jewish communities that were destroyed during the Holocaust. There's something very poignant about the idea that these were things that were used and loved and brought out at holidays and then essentially became trash, he said. Of course, the objects didn't become trash so much as were turned into it by the Nazis and their collaborators. My assumption, based on where they are found, is that most of the people who were entangled with these objects were murdered in the Holocaust. So, in a sense, the collection becomes a Holocaust memorial, Kurzweil said. Kurzweil first purchased an unearthed amulet in the 1970s while on a trip to Presmil, Poland a town where several members of his family had lived before World War II. When I saw my first amulet, my first pendant, I was just drawn to it. I was shocked that they still exist under the ground. I didn't want them to disappear or to be thrown away, Kurzweil said. But it wasn't until 2015 when Kurzweil traveled to Warsaw on his way to his father's hometown of Dobromill that he learned about the tiny dreidels. The friend who showed him the objects introduced him to a metal detector hobbyist, part of a network of treasure seekers who comb regions of Eastern Europe that were devastated during the war. The hobbyists that Kurzweil had encountered largely looked for gold and silver coins to sell, though others hunt more specifically for Nazi paraphernalia. As detailed in Plunder, the recent book by Menachem Kaiser. Few are interested in holding on to detritus, whose value is largely sentimental and mostly limited to Jews. Suddenly, I had myself a network of people who are not really looking for Judaica, but they know that there's a guy in New York who's interested in this stuff, and they contact me, Kurzweil said. For some of the hobbyists, Kurzweil said, the act of sending him the Judaica objects they found, often just for the cost of the postage, and thus interacting with a a living Jew, was clearly meaningful. They liked the fact that they're doing something that's saving the remnants of the Jewish community, he said. And for Kurzweil, too, the relationships with people in Eastern Europe are important. Kurtzweil has traveled to Dobermo 10 times and has gotten to know some of the people who lived there over the years. In 2017 he even donated a playground to the town and raised over $22,000 to purchase supplies for the local school. Thank you to everyone who made this happen he wrote on the GoFundMe page for the school fundraiser. Standing in front of the house where my father was born I read each of your names to myself in a whisper. What a privilege it is to help children anywhere in the world to learn. If the objects Kurzweil collects act as a bridge between him and history, Kurzweil's donations to the children of Daubermel are firmly rooted in his desire to connect the relationships between those who hated each other in the past. The reason I wanted to build a playground was because these were innocent children, Kurzweil said, If it was the other way around, these would have been my neighbors. I don't want to inherit hatred and bitterness. The mayor and the English teacher in town who serves as Kurzweil's interpreter when he visits send him cards every Rosh Hashanah. He hopes to visit again one day. The Lubavitcher Rebbe once said if you encounter something and you think you can fix it, then fix it, Kurzweil said. So when I got there, I thought I could fix it a little bit. Exactly what the future holds for Kurzweil's collections is unclear, for now he's content to let their presence wash over him as he works on a memoir about his family's story, including about his father's pre-war life in Dobermill. But he's starting to think about whether a museum should one day take them on, and he wonders whether any would. Weingast, for one says the collection is of value precisely because the objects within it have no value on their own. He's accumulated a fantastic collection of everyday objects, Weingast said about Kurtzweil, The objects are free, they're of no value, but the expense is paying the people to find them and ship them, and, you know, enticing people to not throw them away, to not just discard them. And next, from the Jewish Family Education page of the Observer, The Testing Point, The Power of Stories, a new series. During the Second World War, recounts Rabbi Menashe Feiger, a Nazi officer came over to my mother and said that he was going to shoot her. Turn around and look away, he cruelly shouted at her. If you are going to shoot me, you will have to look me straight in the eyes, she replied. The Nazi didn't shoot. Courage. In books or online, it's rarely listed along with Jewish values like gratitude, justice, and loving-kindness, or identified as central to a Jewish worldview. In fact, when surveyed by the Forward, not one of the 21 rabbis from across the spectrum even alluded to courage. And yet, biblical and rabbinic literature are filled with courageous characters. Abraham, who smashes his father's idols. The midwives, who defy Pharaoh's murderous order. Naxon who advances first into the Sea of Reeds. The daughters of Zelophehad, who petition Moses for the right to inherit. David, who faces down the mighty Goliath with a slingshot. Mordechai, who refuses to bow to Haman, and Esther, who defies court protocol to approach the king. Courage lurks at the background of many Jewish texts, Rabbi Yitzchak Blau points out. Similarly, to mitzvot, commandments are implied calls to act with courage. The Torah warns judges not to cater their decisions to aristocrats or bullies. Biblical priests exhort soldiers before battle, do not be faint hearted. And although not a commandment, the recurrent biblical phrase, Chazak ve'amatz, strength and courage, is a clarion call for a courageous spirit when facing all manner of challenges and dangers. Unlike the effortless fearlessness of inborn bravery, courage is a choice, explains blogger Brett Warshaw. From the French root meaning heart, it's the willingness to confront challenges despite one's fears. In Hebrew, courage is omete lev, literally strength of heart or inner strength. Rabbi Mark Margolius describes it as an innately endowed spiritual and ethical trait, the human capacity to do what is right and just, even in the face of challenging emotions. Ometz isn't the absence of fear, but the inner strength to move despite fear. Ometz is at the heart of some of the best Jewish to- storytelling. Long ago in Jerusalem lived a wise and caring king, but he had no heir. So he invited the kingdom's school-aged children to a special gathering to help him choose one. Each child was given a small bag of seeds and told to plant a garden. Later he would tour the kingdom to determine whose garden had grown the best and that child would be his heir. When the king began touring he saw magnificent gardens of every design but he didn't smile nor did he speak. Then he arrived at Ariel's garden. The soil was bare. There wasn't even a seedling. When the king asked about her lack of success Ariel nervously explained that she had tried everything, watering and weeding, fertilizing and aerating, even seeking advice from gardeners and landscapers, but the royal seeds simply wouldn't grow. The king smiled and declared Ariel his heir. This wasn't a test of gardening, but of character, he explained to his people. All the royal seeds were boiled before being given to the children they couldn't grow only Ariel had the courage to stick with the rules, seek advice, try new approaches, and honestly tell me what happened. She has shown you why she is worthy of being your next ruler. His draft notice from the Tsar's army in hand, a young yeshiva student went to the Rebbe, the famed Tzfas Emes, for a blessing to be saved from war. The Holy Master studied the youngster, disappeared, and then returned with a manual on circumcision. The Rebbe told the young man to learn how to perform a bris, gave his blessing, and sent him on his way. In basic training, where the peasant soldiers were raucous, undisciplined, and dirty, life was very difficult for the yeshiva student. But he worked hard to look and act like a proper soldier, and in spare moments, or when especially lonely, he studied the Rebbe's little manual from cover to cover. One day, he was ordered to report to the Russian general who promptly aimed his pistol at the boy and began prepping him with questions and shouting orders. Is it true you only eat kosher food? I order you to eat everything to build strength for the Tsar's army. Is it also true you keep the Jewish Sabbath? No resting. I order you to work every day. The young Jew was terrified but answered truthfully and respectfully refused to comply. Suddenly the general smiled and put down his pistol and said simply, I had to be sure. Secretly Jewish himself, the general had a newborn son and wanted a real kosher circumcision won by a dedicated Jew. Because of his courage in the Rebbe's manual, the yeshiva student not only performed the bris, but was honorably discharged by the general from the tsar's army. Courage is the most important of all the virtues, concluded Maya Angelou, because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. And literature to share, as suggested by Candace Arquiatek, Courage, Formulas, Stories, and Insights by Rabbi Zelig Pliston. This how-to guide is perfect for those who want to learn how to increase their courage in everyday situations. Not much bigger than two smartphones side-by-side. It's packed with dozens of practical suggestions for dealing with everything from anxiety and self-image to speaking up and quitting a project. Best of all, the insights are gleaned from real people who grew their own courage. Easily read in one sitting, each single topic chapter is no more than a few pages, each with a blueprint for how to implement a courage-building idea. Pick and choose, or try them all and Kayla and Kugel's Happy Hanukkah by Ann Kofsky. Along with introducing the Hanukkah menorah and dreidel, Kayla and her dog Kugel offer a simple retelling of the Hanukkah story and the miracle of the oil. Sepia pages are cleverly used as visual cues to the ancient story, while lively modern illustrations and engaging characters for modern times make this an excellent Hanukkah reading choice, perfect for preschool and primary agents. Next from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer, author of Hanukkah novel The Matzah Ball aims to subvert traditional Jewish stories by Felissa Kramer, JTA. Jean Meltzer always knew how The Matzah Ball, her first novel, would end. The rule of romance is that there has to be a happy ending. The characters have to get together, Meltzer said. If they don't get together, that's not a romance. That's literary fiction. So, not really a spoiler alert, It was a foregone conclusion that protagonist, Rachel Rubenstein Goldblatt, a best-selling Christmas-themed romance writer who has kept her career from her observant Jewish parents, would wind up with Jacob Greenberg, her Camp Ahava crush, who is now throwing the glitziest Hanukkah party New York City has ever seen. But while Rachel and Jacob's love story conforms to the conventions of the romance novel, Meltzer sees it as subverting traditional Jewish stories that more often dwell on the difficulty or danger of being Jewish. Meltzer, a self-proclaimed rabbinical school dropout and Christmas junkie, also wanted to spotlight a character who, like her, struggles with chronic illness. Rachel's myalgic encephalomyelitis also known as chronic fatigue syndrome is invisible to those who don't know her but shapes her life in every way much as it has for Meltzer who was diagnosed as a young adult and describes herself as basically homebound. Meltzer spoke from her silver tinsel-draped home office in northern Virginia about the impetus behind the matzah ball, why she believes the Hanukkah bush has a place in Jewish homes, and the power of romance novels to shape Jewish identity. Why did you decide to write this book, and what are you hoping to achieve with it? I've always been a nice Jewish girl who loves Christmas, and every year I go into, say, Target, and there's a holiday display with all of the Christmas books. Year after year, I went looking for a Hanukkah book, and there never was one. I just wanted to see myself represented on that table. I could envision it, a blue and white book in the sea of red and green. I also had an experience where my seven-year-old niece was sitting on my lap and she looked at me and she goes, Auntie Jean, you have a big nose and big noses are ugly. She goes to Jewish day school, she's surrounded by strong Jewish women, and I thought, where did she get this message? So when I sat down to write this book, I wanted to do something different from the stories I had grown up with, which were Holocaust stories. Stories where Jews were being taken hostage by terrorists. You never really saw us as the heroes of their own stories. I wanted to write a book for Jews where the heroes were sexy, where the men were strong, where the women were beautiful, where they got their happy ending. I wrote this book primarily for myself, but it was really out of a desire to sort of just create a different type of Jewish story. I think we all know that anti-Semitism is a growing problem. I didn't want to add to that. I wanted to write the best of my community. I wanted to write the best of Shabbat dinners that I've been to, the best of Jewish mothers, the best of Jewish friendships, and all the fun of living in the Jewish world. I wanted people to see Jews in a different light. In the literary world, the Own Voices movement has argued that stories about communities and cultures should be written by people from those communities and cultures. There is also backlash to this idea from those who say it deprives writers of the power to invent and may cause writers to be pigeonholed. How do you see your work fitting into this debate? Having worked with non-Jewish editors and seeing how people have reacted to the book, I can see now that I think in a very Jewish worldview that this is very different from how the rest of the world thinks. Things that I sort of take for granted and nuances that I thought everybody would sort of understand, I had to realize and listen that that was not the case. Listen, I'm a writer, I love writing. Any writer should be able to write any story. But I really think there is something to own voices. You would have to do years and years and years of research, I think, to write a book like The Matzah Ball, if you didn't have the experience. I think there's absolutely something to be said for own voices. The book is very thoroughly Jewish, not just the characters and setting, but the text, which is peppered with references to the Talmud and other texts. Who do you see as the audience? At the end of the day, I don't know who the audience will be, but I will tell you that absolutely non-Jews have picked up the book. Debbie McComer is the queen of Christmas romance. She fell in love with the book and not only gave me a blurb, but she did my launch event recently. The first international territory my book sold to was Sweden, which again is a place that you don't think of, uh, that you don't think has a Jewish, huge Jewish population. And it's going to be the publisher's Christmas lead in 2022. So obviously the book is resonating with non-Jewish readers, and I think it's been resonating with Jewish readers as well, which is the ultimate hope that it reaches who it needs to reach. Your story is about a celebration of holiday aesthetics, but there's also a moment where the characters realize that a bunch of dreidels and menorahs just don't have a glitzy effect. The Christmas aesthetic is so well-developed, and there are so many variations on it, Why do you think the Jewish holiday aesthetic is so much less developed? I did not grow up in a family that had any type of Christmas or Hanukkah decor but I love it now. Every year I start sort of scouring for like a new Hanukkah inflatable for the lawn and every year it's impossible to find something that's good that doesn't look like just a tchotchke on my lawn. Even so I'm very proud of my outdoor display. We have gone insane. We have giant blow-ups put up lights and it's gotten to a point where people literally drive to see us. In Jewish law there are pro- prohibitions against mimicking your foreign neighbors and things like that. So grow up, growing up, I think that was very strong. There was a fear of assimilation and that having a Christmas tree, we were all going to go off and marry non-Jews and not be Jewish anymore. For me, I feel like I've done the work Jewishly and I am very comfortable in my Judaism. So I don't feel like the Hanukkah bush is going to be my slippery slope that's going to push me over the edge and change my belief system. But there is also a commandment of beautifying your holy objects, and then the commandment for Hanukkah lights is that you're supposed to publicize the miracle, right? I'm not a rabbi, but you can maybe make an argument in favor of Hanukkah lawn displays. I've always been a person who likes pretty things and especially with chronic illness and in the middle of a pandemic holding on to my joy is such a big part of my life. And when I walk and it's nighttime and the lights are twinkling, I feel it in my kishkis. It just makes me feel good. If you were to pick a favorite moment in the book or the writing process, one that felt like a peak moment for you, what would it be and why? The hardest thing for me to write or what I think was the most important thing was the bedazzled wheelchair. Jacob sends a sparkly wheelchair to Rachel's apartment after a flare-up of her chronic fatigue leaves her unable to leave home. The problem of chronic illness is that it's invisible. Because we're invisible, our struggles are not fully seen, and because they're not seen, they're not understood. So this idea that, like again, it's almost like intersectionality of identity, We think of ourselves as Jewish, but we're more than just Jewish. A lot of us have multiple identities. By making it visible, by showing that it's so much more normal than we realize, that's how we get people to understand that it's part of our experience. And when you're chronically ill, that moment where you want to use a wheelchair is really the moment when you're like, holy crap, I'm really sick. And when your disability goes from invisible to visible, So I felt it was incredibly important and powerful that women who were chronically ill and sick could see that they could be loved, even in a wheelchair, and that it's okay to accept your disability, and then also that a man or a woman or a partner will love you in spite of whatever your disability is, will love you through all the good and bad of your life. It was the hardest thing to write because I had never seen anything like that in a romance but I felt like at the end of the day, it was the most important scene I wrote in the book. And next, the obituary section of the Dayton Jewish Observer. Charlotte Braverman, age 92, of Columbus, formerly of Dayton, passed away October 25th at her residence. She was a teacher with Trotwood Madison Schools for 15 years, a member of Beth Abraham Synagogue, a life member of Hadassah and was a volunteer for many organizations, including orchestra and U. She was preceded in death by her husband Jerome L. and son Stephen. Mrs. Braverman is survived by her daughters Lori Braverman and Dr. Lisa Braverman. Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be made to Hadassah, Dayton Philharmonic Orchestra, or Beth Abraham Synagogue, in her memory. Howard Faust, age 88, of Dayton, died October 19th at the hospice of Dayton. He was the owner of Carl A. Schmidt's Pharmacy, president of the Miami Valley Pharmaceutical Association, a member of the Ohio State Pharmaceutical Association Board of Directors, president of Temple Israel Brotherhood, a member of the Temple Israel Board of Directors, and a member of the Downtown Dayton Priority Board. He was a passionate tennis player avid reader of fiction, and an active learner at the Osher Institute at University of Dayton. Mr. Faust is survived by his wife Ellen, sons and daughters-in-law Mitchell and Sarah Faust, and Jonathan and Deborah Faust, daughter and son-in-law Jessica and Matt Mayton, sister Sandra Abraham, grandchildren Noah, Isaac and Jeremy Faust, and Samara Mayton. Internment Interment was at Riverview Cemetery. Donations can be made to Temple Israel's uh, Brotherhood Education Fund or the Hospice of Dayton. Highly decorated retired Navy SEAL Michael Raymond Goody Goodbow died November 24, 2020 from injuries sustained while serving his country overseas. To say that Goody was a giant in the special operations community is to underestimate his reputation in the U.S. military and special operations community. Goody served his country with distinction in multiple theaters, including Iraq, Afghanistan, Eastern Europe, and Africa. Goody retired from the Navy as a Chief Warrant Officer, CW2, after a distinguished career as a Navy SEAL, in which he earned the Silver Star Medal for extraordinary heroism, four Bronze Star Medals, two with Valor Device, three Defense Meritorious Service Medals, the Joint Service Commendation Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal, the Joint Service Achievement Medal with Valor Device, three Joint Service Achievement Medals, the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, Combat Action Ribbon, Navy Presidential Unit Citation Medal. Afghanistan Campaign Medal, Iraq Campaign Medal, Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, five Sea Service Deployment Ribbons, Expert Rifleman, Expert Pistol Shot. Goody will be remembered for his warrior spirit, sense of humor, and high standards for himself and his comrades. Goody made a lasting impression on everyone he worked with, whether in peacetime, training, or serving overseas in challenging environments. As fiercely loyal and dedicated as he was in service to his country, so was he with his love and devotion to his family and friends. All were blessed with Goody's wit, warmth, compassion, and love from a man who lifted hearts the moment he walked into the room. At the time of his death, Goody was 54 years old. He will be missed beyond comprehension by Ruthie Litvin Goodbo, his wife of more than 20 years, his parents Michael and Zelia Goodbow, in laws Joseph and Elaine Litvin, uncles, aunts, and cousins, together with his chosen family and friends. Michael R. Goodbow will be remembered with pride, honor, and love for generations to come. Goody was buried at Arlington National Cemetery in September 2021. Donations can be made to the Navy SEAL Foundation at navysealfoundation.org forward slash donate. Kenneth L. Schreiber, age 77, of Dayton, passed away on October 25th. He was born on February 21st, 1944, to Paul Schreiber and Mary Ann Hortense Goldberger in Philadelphia. After graduating from Colonel White, Ohio State, and University of Cincinnati Law, Mr. Schreiber went on to work for the FBI in the days of J. Edgar Hoover, following which he moved home to Dayton to practice law and join the family business. Mr. Schreiber met his spouse, Connie Adams, in 1963 at The Ohio State University and married three years later. Mr. Schreiber loved yoga, hiking with his dogs, camp trips with his lifelong buddies, and just spending time with his many, many friends. He served on numerous community and charitable boards over the years and was well-respected as a leader. Mr. Schreiber was predeceased in death by his father, Paul, mother, Marianne, and brother-in-law, Mario Iglesias. He is survived by his wife of 55 years, Connie, daughters, Pam, Vitaz, and Todd, and Bela and Jason, grandchildren, Elliot, Ethan, Xanthi, Azalea, and Jorma, sisters Sherry Udiski and Alan, Judy Wargo and James, Deborah Shriver and Mario, as well as many beloved nieces, nephews, and cousins. Interment was at Beth Abraham cemetery. Kathy mueller Sloanham of Southport, North Carolina, formerly of Dayton, passed away peacefully October 23, 2021. Born in Stuttgart, Germany, July 1, 1927, she and her family were survivors of the Holocaust. The Nazis took her father to the Dachau concentration camp. In an effort to save their only child, Mrs. Slonem's mother brought her to the Catholic Church in Stuttgart, where she was hidden until her father and mother were able to escape and take her to Luxembourg. Once there, they waited a year for papers to let them enter the United States. Mrs. Slonin was 12 years old when they arrived in Albany, New York. She attended Albany Business College and Sarah Lawrence College. She married in 1951 and moved to Dayton. She worked for 40 years as a school secretary for the City of Dayton Department of Education, Cornell Heights Elementary School, and Hickorydale Elementary School. She was loved by all the staff and students who never hesitated to drop by the office for her support and advice. She was a supporter of literacy and for many years after her retirement she volunteered her time in the schools where she read to students and helped many students learn to read. For 45 years she volunteered for the Hillel Academy Bingo Fundraiser. She volunteered at the Dayton State Hospital for the Mentally Challenged. She was a world traveler who visited countries on every continent. She's survived by her three children, Dr. Charles Sloanum of Tampa, Susan Sloanum Servace of Boston, and Elise Sloanum Brown of Southport, and her beloved sons-in-law, Ed Brown, Arnie Servace, and daughter-in-law, Barry Sloanum. She's also survived by seven grandchildren, Dr. Elliot and Carly Servace of Wellesley, Massachusetts, Dr. Andrew and Rebecca Servace of Boston, Dr. Jackie Cervace and Josh Cram of Bethesda, Maryland; Eric Brown of Durham, North Carolina; Jessica Brown and Ted McCarthy of Woodbridge, Virginia; Arlie Sloanum and Herbie Ziskind of D.C.; Emma Sloanum of D.C., and four great grandchildren. Well, that's all the time we have for the Jewish News Hour this week. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you as always, for listening.